Say It Skillfully is about being who you really are and saying what you think needs to be said, even at work. Whether you're part of a small project team or leading a giant company, the more you accept that you're part of the problem, the faster you can be part of the solution. Join Molly Chang today as together we break the silence and learn how to be happier, healthier, and more productive at work and in life. Hello, Molly here. Welcome to Say It Skillfully, helping you find the words to create shared reality in a way that's true to yourself. I am filled with optimism and hope as you hear from my guest today, you'll feel the same. This episode is the second of my feature called Our Voices, designed for you to hear about the different life journeys of my guests. And we'll hear how we can all take action to accelerate the social change that levels the playing field so that everyone can live to their full potential. I invite you to listen with curiosity and without judgment to gain empathetic understanding of people you might not otherwise encounter. My hope is that you'll benefit from a richer appreciation of widely differing experiences of what it means to grow up, go to school, struggle, work, and live in our world. And I hope in unexpected ways, you'll also see a bit of yourself in these journeys and embrace that we're similar in ways you may not have imagined. So with that, I am delighted that my friend Franz Alphonse is joining me. Franz is currently co-founder and senior managing director of AP Capital Holdings, which we'll learn more about, an entrepreneur who's created billions in value, an author and a philanthropist. Franz is most importantly, a loving husband and father to two amazing boys. Now, on paper, I might say he is guilty of a seemingly perfect path. From a loving, supportive home life with three brothers, he went to college, to graduate school, and into the world of high finance, and he's fulfilling a vision from his youth of helping create economic opportunities for those whose backgrounds weren't as supportive as his. I think, though, we'll hear some lows along with the highs. Uh, And my friend, Franz, I welcome you to say it skillfully. (laughs) Thanks, Molly. It's such a delight to be connecting with you. Yeah, this is going to be so fun. Okay. Uh, In the U.S., we see in earnest people are starting to talk openly and publicly and confronting issues of social racial equity. Um, I imagine that as a person of color, as you went from youth uh, to early in career to leader, you may not have been fully transparent about what it was really like for you. So, you know, in the spirit of helping listeners to learn, I appreciate you, Franz, for being willing to share your journey, the struggles, the defining people, events, milestones, and and all the unexpected um, that have shaped you into the brilliant human being you are today. Thank you, Molly. Uh, Well, to say the least, uh, it's it's been a fascinating journey, um, a journey that I I wouldn't trade for uh, for anything. And um, uh, to say the least, uh, when I look back at... um, uh, the ways in which I've, I've, I've been able to contribute. And candidly, some of the obstacles that I've been able to overcome uh, haven't come from uh, fairly humble beginnings. Um, I do feel uh, uh, a certain sense of pride, and I'm delighted to share uh, as much as I can uh, with you and your audience members. Oh, I really appreciate that. And, um, you know, it's... It's an open canvas, so um, I'll let you start where you'd like to start. Yeah. Um, well, what I would say is that, um, uh, you know, uh, as we've been hearing about in the, uh, the broader culture, 
particularly as a young uh, black man growing up in the United States, there were certainly um, a number of instances and um, a number of challenges that I encountered. Uh, however, but as I, I reflect on it and I think about it, Molly, the, the biggest challenge was the one, uh, the ones that, that um, uh, arose out of uh, uh, issues associated with identity. And, you know, believe me, I've, I've had run-ins with the police officers and, uh, uh, you know, I've, I've been, you know, stopped and profiled and, and all of those scenarios. But I think that the most damaging thing, the most challenging thing I, I had to um, overcome was um, uh, issues associated with finding my place in the world, especially when there weren't very many role models that looked like me. And um, I struggled with it. Uh, where did I belong? Um, are all the things that I wanted to do even possible? Um, who would help me? Um, uh, were there anyone, were there any individuals in my immediate circle who believed that these things were, were possible? And as a young man, I was extremely competitive and uh, I was just pregnant with possibility. But um, I also, as a result, suffered from nagging self-doubt. And, um, uh, you know, it, it kept me down. And I think it, it all came to a boiling point when I was about uh, 19 or 20 years old. And um, uh, I just didn't, uh, uh, you know, see a path forward, at least not in a way that I thought was possible for myself. And um, uh, it began to show up in my academic performance, and uh, my parents were deeply, deeply concerned. But, um, you know, as, as a number of our spiritual texts say, when uh, there was no vision, uh, the people perished. And I just didn't have a vision for myself that um, was compelling, and the one that, candidly, society was giving, giving me was just not inspired. And... Um, it wasn't, uh, it wasn't uh, a compelling vision. Um, thankfully, I had um, a uh, terrific father um, who at the moment uh, uh, that uh, he sat me down at 19 and wanted to understand what was going on. I, I didn't understand that he, he was being a terrific father at the time. Um, but that moment was, for me, the moment that made every other moment possible. It was an extremely difficult conversation. I'll, I'll spare you the details. Um, but suffice it to say, uh, in that moment, uh, uh, something shifted. And I decided right then and there that I would never settle for being anything other than the very best version of myself. And I would never settle for anything other than everything that I could contribute and I could give. And it, it's made all the difference. And, it, it's, you know, I've had my ups and downs ever since, but I've never, I've never returned back to that, that, um, that time period, that, that, that level of despair. And um, uh, it's made all the difference. And in, and in that moment, that's where I sat down, <laughs> right, uh, 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 pulled out a, a notepad that was sitting in the house, sat at my father's um, breakfast room table by myself, and at 19, wrote out 
um, what was basically a manifesto about what my life was going to be about. Countries I wanted to live in, languages I wanted to speak, businesses that I wanted to build and acquire, uh, contributions that I wanted to make, the family that I wanted to, lit to, to, uh, to have, how deeply I wanted to love. All of these scenarios I wrote down on one piece of paper. And at age 19, everything that I did from that moment forward became about making this piece of paper come alive. And um, I've never looked back, and I'm now 48. Okay, Franz, that's crazy. That's amazing. <laughs> okay, can you give us a little insight? Because I think this is this is the rubber meets the road. Right. Parts of the conversation from your father that you're comfortable sharing help us with, you know, the getting the, the getting through the tough stuff. You know, and yeah, I, and sure. I think that's so it, it let let me uh, save you the suspense. It was it was a moment of tough love, and. Uh, uh, as I recall, it was quite early in the morning, and my father called me into his office. His, his office was, was in the house, and he called me into the office. Um, as I recall, it was about um, 6.20 in the morning, and um, he demanded to um, understand. He demanded an explanation um, as to why it was that um, I simply wasn't performing in life, and my grades were tumbling, and I seemed listless, and... and um, out of it. And of course, back then, you know, you know, 30, 40 years ago, we didn't have the language for this, but I was going through a depression. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I was struggling with, with issues of identity and belonging, and, and um, uh, I, I didn't have the language to explain what was going on at the time. And uh, my father, I think, um, uh, did the very best that he could but he immediately made it clear in very terse terms that he, did, he expected more out of me. And I would later learn that um, as tough as that was, and I'm not taking anything away from um, uh, you know, the need to be gentle in situations like that, but as tough as that was, uh, the, the interesting thing is, is that my dad was also demonstrating confidence in my ability. Um, it was a shocking moment, <laughs> to say the least. Um, it was just a complete shock to my nervous system, but I immediately got up, Molly. I took a cold shower. I put on a, a well-starched white shirt, a pair of slacks, a pair of, of, of loafers. Didn't have a job to go to, but as far as I was concerned, I was employed, <laughs> right? <laughs> my business began right then and there, and I sat down and I wrote down all types of goals and all types of visions for myself. Specifically, at age 19, I wrote down that I was going to buy multi-million dollar corporations for a living. That was going to be my mission and my livelihood. I wrote down that I was going to visit and live in half a dozen countries around the world. Um, I wrote down that I was going to um, learn various languages. Um, and very importantly, um, and this was probably the, the biggest, uh, uh, the moment where uh, uh, those dogs of Dow started creeping back in, I wrote down that I wanted to study with the best in the world at the single most powerful graduate school of business on, on the planet. I wanted to go to Harvard Business School and study with the very, very best at how I was going to pull this off. And at, at 19, uh, I figured that if I gave myself 20 years to kind of you know, pull this all off and then worked my way back to year 10, year 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, go back, you know, uh, uh, 12 months, six months, three months, one month, 
right up until the moment that we were, I was sitting there at my, my father's breakfast, room, uh, breakfast uh, table, uh, I laid out the whole strategy and the plan, and uh, I got up and immediately began to execute in um, a way that, that candidly, I, I don't really find in, in many other people that I meet. Um, I, just, I just don't meet many people with uh, my level of, of tenacity and focus and um, uh, 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 believe me when I tell you that at, at 19 it was even more intense um, than it is today, and um, it's made all of the difference. Uh, I love it. I love it. Okay, so I knew that you're a unique creature when I met you. The, the brothers, the family, to, to have <laughs> what happened before 19 to even have those seeds? I mean, just share a little bit about those. Your father is a business person. I mean, what was, what, you know, what were the Alphonse conversations at home that would, you would even have that kind of a potential vision to pull out of, <laughs> out of the hat? Right. Well, you know, here's the thing. I, I, I had a phenomenal foundation, okay? My, my dad's retired pastor. My mom's retired teacher and, and, and librarian. And we were first-generation immigrants to the United States. My dad was born and raised in Panama of, of, of Caribbean descent, uh, very much identifies Jamaican. My mother's Jamaican. I was born in Jamaica myself. Um, and my father, being a missionary uh, and a minister, um, really, for the first half of my childhood, we, we traveled extremely extensively. And uh, that, it, that, in many ways, um, seeded in me uh, uh, the start of an identity of someone who viewed himself as a member of a global community. So with my dad being from Panama, my mom being from Jamaica, and, and really traveling to, to uh, uh, different countries pretty much every three years, having a multi-generational experience, having a multi-social um, experience. It was, it was um, uh, quite common for us to go to school with, with people who um, were the leadership um, of the various countries that we lived in, and we always went to the best private schools that you know, my parents insisted. But at the same time, my, my father worked with the most impoverished people from, the, from uh, some of the poorest countries in the Western, Hem- Western Hemisphere. So, you know, we, we had this, this uh, tapestry of experience, which, um, which was simply extraordinary. Um, humble beginnings, uh, for sure, economically, but very, very rich intellectually, right? And then the second thing I would say is, is that especially when, when we moved to the United States, and I, I credit my mother a little bit more for this than my dad, we came here with a singular focus, and that was to get the very best education anywhere that um, one could find. And the net result is, is that of my four of the siblings, uh, uh, of the five of us, four of us went to Harvard, um, either on the graduate or, I'm sorry, excuse me, is that correct? Yes, of the five of us, four of us went to Harvard. Uh, two went to Harvard College, one, one went to Harvard Law School, and I eventually attended the MBA program at Harvard uh, years later as, as the runt of the litter. But that was not by accident, and... Um, uh, you know, I, I, I think we're, we're generally intelligent people, but, but probably more importantly, we worked extremely, extremely hard. So a phenomenal foundation that um, I received from my parents. That's amazing. When you think about the folks, um, and I was just talking to my brother-in-law about this, when their families aren't, that, aren't in, in a position to be a supportive 
their parents are working two jobs. They're the older sibling. They've got younger. I mean, how, how, when you look at that, how do you feel? I mean, I, it, just, it just seems like it's, you know, it's hard. Like, what, what comes up for you? Um, well, contextualize, contextualize that question for me. Uh, uh, are, are you asking me, uh, you know, what it was like growing up in that environment with, with, with siblings that um, uh, were academically driven? You know, just contextualize that question for me just a little bit further. I, I appreciate the Alphonse. I mean, it's fabulous, like the, 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 the foundation and the values your parents imbued in you. But when you look out at, at folks who, a lot of folks that you're helping, right? And their, yes. their home life just isn't, right? It's yes. just really hard. And I'm just wondering, yes. just emotionally for you, not that you could change their life, but like what, how does that make you feel? Like what comes up for you? Yeah, there, there's no doubt. And I've, and I've given a lot of, a lot of thought to that. Um, uh, there's no doubt that um, the conversation that we're having now as a culture is an extremely important one. It's, it's way overdue. And, um, uh, you know, one that, that I think whether you're black or white, we, we should all embrace. And, I, and I'm, I'm uh, encouraged by the extent to which we, we do appear to, embracing that, to be embracing that conversation. But when we talk about systemic challenges and systemic racism, for me, the first thing that we've got to tackle is education. Right, and and because in, in my opinion, if you've got a great education, you know you know how to learn, and we can teach our young people to learn how to learn. You can you can you can get to anything, okay, and and you can you can tackle any challenge. In my particular case, I had a phenomenal foundation. However, some of the places that I was I was trying to go were not well trod by people who looked like me. And uh, I'd always had an interest in business. I was always fascinated by leverage buyouts. But my biggest challenge was that I just didn't understand or know if that was possible for me. And I loved my parents, but we came from humble beginnings. And um, the, the idea of, of coming from where we came from to becoming uh, a buyout entrepreneur, it, it, you know, there was a time in life when that felt like, you know, asking me to, to fly to Mars or something, okay, and, and without the role models, it became a real challenge. So what I ended up having to do is rely on my education, and I started reading voraciously. And instead of finding role models that were physically in my proximity, what I would do is I would piece together role models, bits and pieces from historical characters that would serve as my role models or if you will, if you think about me having started a business in my mind at age 19, these individuals became my board of directors. And I pieced together a board of directors from books that I would read, right? So as an example, um, so, so just to answer your question, Molly, if we can instill that, if we can create that opportunity for others, you know what, I get that there's challenges on the ground, but if we can show young people how to travel in their minds, how to enter a book and travel to other, to other time periods, okay, or to connect with another individual, through, you know, uh, despite the physical barriers, but to connect, to connect with them through a book or other piece of literature, right, and teach them how to, how, to, how to integrate that information in a way that's effective and to do so quickly. That, that is true wealth, and with that, you can do anything, right? So... Um, uh, at 19, I started reading voraciously, okay, just reading everything I could get my hands on. Magazines, books, biographies especially were very, very important to me. 
and I came across uh, the biography called uh, The Founding Father, and it was the biography of Joseph P. Kennedy, right? Yeah. The, uh, the patriarch of the Kennedy dynasty. Now, it's worth mentioning that Joe Kennedy was a deeply flawed human being, all right? The guy definitely <laughs> had a lot of challenges, okay, yep. uh, that we don't necessarily have to get into, but, um, you know, he, he had a, a lot of problems, okay? But it's important to keep in mind that within the context of the struggle to find someone, anyone that could teach me something, I chose to kind of pick and choose certain aspects and use that as a part, uh, as my efforts to... Um, uh, 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 to create a, an amalgamation, if you will, of a role model or a board of directors. So looking at Joe, leaving off some of the negative stuff, but cherry-picking some of the positive stuff, the first thing I found and the first thing I liked about his experience was that he was an amazing role model, an amazing coach to his kids in certain aspects. So I said, great, that's one piece that I'd like to take. The other thing I noticed about Joe is that, like me, he was extremely competitive, right? And he couldn't stand being underestimated, right? And there was a commonality in that Joe was a member of the underclass of his generation, being Irish Catholic, right? And he he hated it, right? And something that I resonated with and understood was the extent to which he just wanted to rip his skin off when he felt like other people were judging him because he was Irish Catholic, I totally understood that, and I got that about him, right? Amazing. And then there are some other elements of, of Joe Kennedy that, that um, uh, enabled me to kind of view him as a member of my board. Um, he came from very humble beginnings. He happened to have been uh, from the same uh, part of Boston that I was growing up in at the time. He was an athlete, okay? And... Um, he had no inclination that some of the things that he wanted to do, um, he was going to be able to do. And oh, by the way, he first made his money as a buyout entrepreneur doing leverage buyouts, right? Um, and importantly, he closed in his first transaction at the age of 23. Now, the other thing about Joe that I was modeling was that he was constantly playing three-dimensional chess. And... Uh, uh, whenever he solved one challenge in, in a particular context, if you look just beneath the surface, he was solving two, three, and four problems all at the same time. And that became a problem-solving technique that I would actually replicate across a number of contexts myself, and I even, even gave it a name, Simultaneous Outcome Thinking. I'm, I'm, I addressed it in a, a, a book that is uh, due to, to be published next year. And I apply simultaneous outcome thinking in virtually everything that I do and, and every problem-solving uh, uh, encounter, that um, uh, every, every challenge that I encounter, and, and I need to apply this problem-solving so, uh, problem technique to it. So um, Joe became a, a really um, uh, uh, interesting character to bring onto my board of directors. There was also another gentleman by the name of Reginald Lewis, um, he happened to have been African-American and was just larger than life. And um, he became uh, uh, one of our first African-American billionaires in the late 1980s, early 1990s, when he bought a company called Beatrice Foods. And as I recall, uh, when he was at the press conference and now announcing his billion-dollar buyout of Beatrice Foods, 
a reporter asked him why it is that he got into the leverage buyout game and, and why was this so important to him. I'm just kind of paraphrasing. And in, in a room filled with, with no people of color, as I imagined, <laughs> and um, as a black man having pulled off something that no other ethnic minority had pulled off in U.S. business history before, he just kind of you know, went off and you know, turned to the uh, uh, reporter t- t- tongue-in-cheek and said, well, you know, I, I have all of these white friends and they're making all this money and doing these interesting things. I just thought to myself, you know, why should white guys have all the fun? So with that as the basis, I decided to go out and buy this company for a billion dollars. And I remember reading that in his biography, and I was just floored that he felt so free and, and so uh, unencumbered. Um, it just made an impression on me. It actually became the, the title of his book, uh, Why Should White Guys Have All the Fun? Um, the, uh, how Reginald Lewis Created a Billion-Dollar Business Empire. And I read that biography cover to cover. Uh, cover, to cover. So those, those were two examples of, of individuals that, on a select basis, I kind of created this al- amalgamation, right, leaving off the negative and just kind of cherry-picking the elements of their story that, or, or, their, or their life, life experience that, that I really connected with. You just have, there's just, you're just, your wings are like, 10 miles long. This is amazing that at that age, seriously, that you could cherry, I mean, the ability to cherry pick and be like, here's goodness and I'm taking the goodness and I'm not going to get lost in kind of the darkness there. Yeah. How, that's, that's not minor, right? Because a lot of people say, oh my gosh, look at this. But you chose, you chose to stay high, right? To well, pick the brain. Well, say more. Well, I, I appreciate that, Molly. Um, I have a mentor of mine today that is very fond of saying that people do interesting things either out of inspiration or out of desperation. And I agree with you that, that what I was demonstrating was uh, an uncommon level of insight for a 19-year-old. However, I can't overstate this. Um, I, can't, I can't overstate how desperate I was, <laughs> right? You know, uh, uh, that the level of desperation that inspired that level of insight and that level of fire and that level of focus. And um, uh, in many ways, I'm, I'm actually thankful for having gone through that um, because I, I learned how to tap into something that was um, uh, pretty uncommon. And, and on occasion, I can you know, flex that muscle um, again, even to this day. Franz, when did desperation, so desperation the driver, when did you... When did inspiration, when, when were you able to pivot and take that on? <laughs> um, that's a terrific question. Um, so, um, why, you know, you know there, there's so many instances, and I, I've just been so many blessed, like, you know, in so many contexts, Molly. Um, I remember, uh, for example... Uh, ten years early, ten years later, having a conversation with my dad, and um, he expressed to me um, how proud he was of me uh, and everything that I was able to do, and um, I I think that he was acknowledging the extent to which, uh, maybe within the context of my family, but maybe even on a broader extent, I was leading by example, and. Um, I think he was expressing the extent to which um, I wasn't going to let 
the present moment or a present situation define me. And I had been proving that year after year after year. And, you know, 10 years later, I did, in fact, uh, you know, graduate in fine style from Harvard. And um, I, I had just closed my, uh, I just bought my second company. Um, I was barely 30 years old, if I recall correctly. Um, still in my early 30s, I should say. And um, that was a, a true moment of a full circle moment. Um, you know, with my uh, with my father, and then um, uh, you know, I remember when I, I I bought my first company, and I was with my business partners and the CEO of the company. It's a company called Zero Chaos. I was only a couple years out of school, if I recall correctly, and here it is: uh, the company was doing maybe sixty million dollars of gross revenue. Um, had never done this before. And uh, obviously, against extraordinary odds, had, had pulled off this transaction. And the level of joy, <laughs> right? It had nothing to do with the money, right? The, the, the level of joy that I felt with my business partners at the time and all the members of my deal team and my lawyers and the accountants, I mean, we, we must have drank, I want to say, a dozen bottles of champagne that night, <laughs> Right? And it, as I recall, it, it was one of the most joyous nights of my entire life, right? I still have that bottle of champagne, actually, uh, in my home uh, celebrating that, uh, that transaction. And that deal um, uh, went on to, to generate up, up from $60 million of revenue. We, drew, we grew it to $1.4 billion. And uh, it became uh, our flagship transaction. You know, we've done over a dozen deals since then. But I've never, I've never had, you know, I've never had that same feeling, right? I've done bigger deals. Uh, we've, we've certainly gone, uh, gone out to do some other interesting stuff. But the way I felt in that one, that one moment after having pulled off uh, what seemed impossible and referencing that piece of paper from when I was 19, uh, the, the, the level of euphoria um, was just incredible. And it was, it was more about who I had to become to pull this off versus the, actually, the actual monetary rewards from the transaction. Oh, I can feel it. I can feel it. It is so amazing. And, you know, kudos. I mean, I had tears in my eyes just hearing you talk about your father, you know, honoring you and telling you what he really thought. I mean, I can't imagine a parent's pride. I can't imagine it. It's amazing. Um, Franz, we could talk a long time. I'd love to, this notion of education, just yeah. before we move on to the current business, any, anything you'd offer for listeners, what they might be able to do in their small or big ways around um, this education topic? You know, part of we're trying to make this concrete for folks. So any, any suggestion you might have for people wanting to be a little bit more part of the solution, right, and less a part of the problem um, in helping uh, our, yeah, all of our youth sure. get educated. Yeah. So for for your so for your viewers, I'm I'm uh, I'm going to talk um, on on the one hand um, uh, for anyone within uh, uh, earshot of of my voice, um, whether you are a, uh, a high level politician uh, or a Fortune 500 CEO, or um, whether you're struggling. Uh, in one way or the other, and are trying to uh, to uh, to find your voice and trying to find your place. Um, 
what I would say is, especially within the context of uh, the social dialogue that we have going on here, what I would say is, whether it's with yourself or, or with your fellow citizens, do not be afraid to have the difficult conversation. Nothing, nothing progresses without a, a willingness and a commitment to say, to say the unspeakable, <laughs> right? Yeah. <laughs> right? Um, yeah. And to invite a, uh, a dialogue about what's most, most important and most challenging to talk about. Okay. So that's the one thing I would say. And in the event that you are that Fortune 500 CEO, and this is a, an audience that I typically deal with all the time, I would say, hey, listen, when uh, viewing and thinking about uh, the challenges that we're currently speaking about in the African-American community and with people of color, the solutions that we've got to put into place cannot be small. And... Far too often uh, when interacting with my colleagues and constituents, especially among the Fortune 1000, largest corporations in the world, there, there seems to be almost a sense of um, incrementalism and, dare I say, tokenism when it comes to addressing issues in the communities of people of color, especially the African-American community. If you want to engage with the African-American community, you've got to do it on a, in, in uh, a, a significant way, at a significant scale. In my particular business, for example, we, uh, we put together deals, uh, private equity transactions and buyout transactions that are specifically designed, one, to uh, uh, address minority ownership of those companies, um, and two, specifically designed to address a spate of other corporate citizenship objectives, including economic development. And far too often, I've entered into these conversations, and uh, uh, invariably, you get the sense that they think that you're talking about uh, a relatively small transaction. No, I don't do small transactions, okay? I'm talking about globally relevant companies that service into the largest corporations in the world that happen to be minority-owned, okay? I'm talking about companies that are domiciling their headquarters or the distribution centers or the manufacturing facilities in HUD zones or qualified opportunity zones where unemployment tends to be stubbornly high for people of color. And if you're talking about a company or an uh, innovation center um, on the technology side that um, is on the global scale but happens to be domiciled in these geographies, then you can have a major, major impact. And my challenge to my friends at the highest level of, of politics and at the highest levels of, of the Fortune 500 is that when you're speaking to me, understand that I'm going to be having a dialogue about big interventions on the billion-dollar scale that are globally relevant. And yes, they, ha they happen to be minority-owned, and yes, they happen to be addressing economic de um, development issues in, in the communities of people of color. Yeah. So this is this this is this play big three dimensional chess, <clears throat> simultaneous outcome thinking life. Right. So <clears throat> for mo for most of our listeners, we're not in this super um, um, how do you say very complex. Can you peel back the onion? Just take us through an example, Franz, of how you're how you're making it work and the different stakeholders. Just give us yeah. an example so people can make it real. And then some of the things that have been 
maybe if if there's challenges and people are pushing back, you know, how you're kind of helping people see the light and and, and yes. really how transformative this can be. Yes. So so uh, almost everyone can on, can relate to what it's like, for example, to buy a house, right? Even if you don't own a home, um, most people are kind of familiar with the process, right? So I'll, I'll liken it to that. Well, w- what I do, um, imagine that, that, Molly, you're trying to buy a house or, or buy a, an, an apartment, right? And um, you're in negotiations with um, uh, the, uh, the owner of the house, okay? Um, and you've kind of made a decision that this is the house you, you want to buy, okay? Um, but there's certain adjustments that, you're, that you want to make, Right? You might mm-hmm. want to negotiate for them to repair the roof. Um, uh, you know, you might want to build up a, a, a plan with your significant other to paint the living room, and you know, you have a, a, an idea of, of the design um, for the uh, the furnishings and and you know things of that nature, right? Well, part of what's going on is that in be- in between the amount of time in the moment that you've decided you want to buy the house, and the moment you've actually consummated the purchase. That's an extremely uh, creative time period, right? Mm-hmm. Everything is possible within the context of the, the home that you've identified, but you haven't yet bought it yet. I pretty much do the same thing when buying a business. And we, we can uh, have a separate conversation about where the money is coming from and, and how I finance the transactions and so on and so forth. But um, uh, when I encounter a business that uh, I think would be a good investment that we'd like to um, uh, 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 acquire the, the business. It's got great potential. It, it has the ability to return um, uh, high returns to my uh, 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 financial counterparts, let's just say my investors. Um, before I've actually made the acquisition, but from the moment that I've signed an indication of interest or a letter of intent, expressed my intent to acquire the business, in that time frame is a very creative time frame. Now, usually what private equity executives typically do is they say, great, I want to buy that business. Here's a strategic plan. Um, uh, you know, here's the purchase price, um, and off we go, right? I typically do the same thing, but as part of the strategic plan, I also ask a broader set of questions. Is it possible that this company could be a change agent? a force for good? Can this company be leveraged to drive employment in certain areas that we're not contemplating right now? Is it possible that the company properly structured could be certified as a minority business enterprise by virtue of the individuals who are participating in the capitalization of the business? Could we, as part of the business plan, embrace the principles of diversity and inclusion from the board level all the way to the entry level, all as part of the strategic plan before the acquisition is consummated. This is effectively what I do. Now, it's a little bit more complicated than that because, as you said, it's three-dimensional chess. There is the corporate citizenship piece, the economic development piece. There is the diversity and inclusion piece. Um, and you can even include, for example, climate change and sustainability, Right? You can, in, in this COVID-related environment, you can include healthcare, right, health and wellness as a metric that you want to measure and positively impact by virtue of this transaction. These things are all, pos- um, all possible. Now, at the same time, 
um, I'm trying to drive extraordinary uh, returns in addition to uh, touching these, these corporate citizenship objectives. And what I will do is I will turn to, for example, the customers of this particular company. Let's just say it's a, a manufacturer of plastic straws, and one of, my, one of my customers is Starbucks or McDonald's. Part of what I will do is I'll sit down with Starbucks and McDonald's and say, hey, listen, I can hit some of these corporate citizenship objectives that you really care about, but in turn, I want you to be my partner to grow this business over time. I don't want you to just be a customer. I really want you to be engaged. I want you to demonstrate you care about these things, and I want it to show up in your engagement in this company uh, in many ways as my partner in the deal. And when I have those conversations, part of what I'm saying is they need to be billion-dollar conversations. They need to be global conversations, whether it's Starbucks, Bank of America, uh, McDonald's. Demonstrate to me that you care about these corporate citizenship objectives, and let's go out there and get it done. It's the only way I'll do a deal. So hopefully that, that helps to, to simplify. It's, you know, uh, just trying to get the basics of, of you know, what I do on the table. That's Does amazing. That make sense, it makes a ton of sense. And so do you have a line out the door? I mean, are people just knocking on the door like, please <laughs> work with, pick us. <laughs> I, I love what I do, okay? Um, and, and there's just no doubt in my mind that this is, this is my mission. This is my work. This, this is what I was made for. This is very inspiring for me to hear because I think business absolutely needs to provide financial returns and, and it really needs to, to be good for society. And there's just this just a demonstrated win-win. It takes, you know, your incredible vision and, and intelligence to be able to see the three dimensions and to pull it all together. Um, the, do you find that, that your, your, Fortune 500 types of partners, are they getting it? Is, are there people who don't get it? I mean, it's hard for me to imagine that they wouldn't get it, that this is actually a great way to go. I'm curious, are, are some people pushing back on you and saying, no, no, Franz, it's cutting down on our, our, our financial returns. We can't go with that. Oh, no, no, no. The, uh, you know, quite the opposite. You know, my, first of all, my model um, actually drives terrific internal rates of return. And, and um, certainly, the results that our portfolio have, has uh, demonstrated would, would fully substantiate that, okay? And the reason is, is because part of what we're doing is, you know, again, going back to, to simultaneous outcome thinking, I'm solving um, multiple challenges for my customers, my Fortune 500 end customers, okay? Going back to the manufacture of plastic straws, Starbucks, as an example, deeply cares about economic de- development, Starbucks deeply cares about diversity and inclusion. Starbucks deeply cares about climate change and sustainability. They deeply care about gender equality, okay? And as long as I'm willing and able to work with Starbucks before I have anything to buy or anything to sell to help them become a bigger, better company, in this particular case, in their supply chain, by the time we have an acquisition to do together... They're virtually a partner to me, and I'm getting uncanny, uncommon uh, insight around revenue and business development opportunities and partnership opportunities with the customer. And in most cases, you know, Starbucks is one example. Typically, we're having the same conversations with McDonald's and Wendy's and Darden restaurants and Disney, so on and so forth, simultaneously. So I'm, I'm trading my willingness to address diversity issues and, and these other corporate citizenship objectives 
for asymmetry of information that leads to higher internal rates of return. So <laughs> bar none, the, the returns are there. Now, mm-hmm. as it pertains to the reception that we're getting from the corporates, it's extremely encouraging. My business partners and I, for example, just uh, closed on a transaction with very, very high levels of support from AT&T. We just closed uh, last quarter uh, on a company called Sequential Technology. And I have to credit my, my business partners with having done an amazing job with that, with that transaction. Um, but um, it, it's in many ways, other than zero chaos, it's the model for how we'd like to work. And uh, my business partner, Richard Powell, especially um, cultivated a very strong relationship with AT&T. And um, AT&T, in turn, had, had said, you know, we really need to do something about our engagement with the African-American community. We want to build, um, as you were indicating, Richard, uh, uh, suppliers that, that are African-American-owned on the billion-dollar you know, billion scale. Well, you know, we were able to, to consummate a transaction virtually identical to the model I just described. And working with AT&T, we, we found a mission-critical supplier. Um, it, this wasn't a hostile uh, situation in any way, shape, or form um, that needed a, a change of ownership um, organically. We were able to step in, acquire the business, certify it officially as a minority business enterprise, African-American-owned, right? We um, uh, identified a, a powerful executive to, who, who happens to be African-American to run the company for us. Um, he's well on his way to generating wealth um, by virtue of his participation. Uh, we are uh, uh, employing a management incentive pool to uh, share that ownership with uh, uh, other members of the company. We are in discussions right now to move the company um, to uh, another location, headquarter it, likely in a HUD zone or a qualified opportunity zone where uh, unemployment is, stubborn, is stubbornly high. And working with AT&T, we, we specifically identified economic development objectives that we want to address by virtue of the transaction in addition to the pure, um, let's just say, commercially driven um, strategic plan that we also have to execute behind now, as part of that, listen, I'm helping AT&T and, and my business partners are helping AT&T to address a number of corporate citizenship objectives. You know, they're in many ways like a partner to us in that deal. And the net result is, is that uh, our um, investors and financial cons- uh, other constituents are going to do extraordinarily well behind that transaction. And we've got other examples just like that. This is off the charts, Franz. Win, 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 and and you know, so inspiring to hear how I think some folks may look at big corporates as stodgy; they can't shift, et cetera, et cetera. And I just think you've shown us that um, where there's a will, there's a way. It's it's phenomenal. I'm gonna before we get to the closing topic, I want to ask um, for you to share if folks are interested, Franz. Where might they go just to get more information? Yeah, um, absolutely. Um, I'll give you my uh, my website and all of my contact information is there. It's www.apch.com. Again, that's www, A is in Apple, P is in Peter, C is in Cat, H is in House.com, apch.com. Perfect. And I will include that um, when I send out the link for the show. So to close, I'd like to bring it back full circle to what's most important to you, and that is your family. Yeah. Um, and, and I remember us having some conversations about conversations your father had to have with you when you were younger 
And I'm just curious your thoughts on, you know, what you wish for your kids. What are some of the conversations you think you still have to have with them um, yes. that might be race-based? And, and um, yes. I'd love to hear your Well, there's, there's no doubt. Um, uh, in the African-American community, we're, we're all very familiar. It's almost part of our culture um, that we have to have the quote-unquote talk, right? And um, uh, that talk, um, especially for our young men of color, um, surrounds um, or, or uh, uh, revolves around, hey, um, if you are ever pulled over by um, the police, here is um, a code of conduct that basically we expect of our young men, right? And there's, in my estimation, um, I, I don't know of any African-American parents, any African-American family that hasn't had this talk. And, um, uh, you know, it's... We expect, yes, sir, no, sir, hands on a steering wheel, no sudden movements, right? Um, uh, basically, we expect you to be on your best behavior. Now, the tragic thing about that conversation is that when our parents um, are having these conversations with our young men of color, tacitly what we're saying is, is that we're, we're admitting that we live in a society that doesn't value um, uh, the life of a young black man um, in the same way as it values the life of a young white man. And uh, what these parents are basically saying is that because of that reality, I need you to be on your best behavior if you're ever encountered by the police. Now, in my particular household, it wasn't one conversation. Uh, uh, it was virtually every time my dad handed me the car keys, I was given that look, which kind of summarized the conversation, um, or I was very directly told that um, uh, it was his expectation that I'd be on my best behavior because, um, uh, and I know this now that uh, I'm a father, um, they, they wanted me to come home alive. Okay, and um, as it pertains to uh, my sons, I'll be very candid that um, in 15 or 20 years when um, they are getting ready to get behind the, um, uh, the wheel, it's my expectation that I will not have to have that conversation. I, 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 it's, it's my expectation that I will not have to have that conversation. And uh, beyond that, um, I would say that it is my hope for my, uh, my two sons that I'm leading by example, that uh, I am being the individual that I hope and pray that they grow up to become. And um, it's also my expectation that um, uh, they both rise to the level of, of outstanding um, in whatever field of human endeavor they choose to, uh, to pursue, whatever, whatever path it is that um, uh, they follow or however it is that um, they define outstanding for them, I hope that, that they will live um, at that level and uh, be fulfilled um, uh, on that purpose. That's amazing. That's amazing. Um, to close, you know, you've been so generous and... You know, I've often said when people share their stories, I mean, that is the ultimate act of generosity to give of oneself. And I imagine 
over the years, you've, you've told it in different ways. And so I'm, I'm curious for today, closing out our time, you know, what was it like for you to share with me, with, you know, with our listeners? I'm, I'm just wondering what it was like for you personally to be doing that. Um, yeah, I'm, Molly, I'm just, uh, you know, really gratified. And, um, uh, you know, I don't mind telling you that uh, on one or two occasions in sharing um, some of my experience, it's, it's a bit emotional, um, especially as it pertains to my hopes for my sons. And um, I'm just really, you know, grateful for our friendship, Molly, and um, for the opportunity to, um, to maybe uh, 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 touch the lives of some of the individuals that might be listening to us today. Yeah, I am, I am grateful for you. I, you know, I'm, you're off the charts. You're the rocket ship. I just envision you're just going up there. You are going to Mars, okay? Like the, and so I, uh, I hope for listeners this really was inspiring. Um, Franz, you know how to reach me. We'll be in touch. If there's ever anything I can do for you, for the business, for the kids, uh, please let me know. I, um, I am really beyond grateful. I'm in awe. Um, and I really, really thank you for being part of the solution because uh, with people like you, I have no doubt uh, we're better together. We're going to get through this um, and we are going to all emerge stronger. Amen to that. Thank you, Molly. Always a pleasure. Thank you take good care. Wow. Um, that was amazing. I hope folks uh, enjoyed that, learned from that, and inspired. Um, I will give a reminder that I have the site, sayitskillfully.com. You heard Franz encourage us all to have some of those conversations. I would ask you to think about just one right now. So one conversation, one person uh, with whom perhaps um, you maybe haven't seen eye to eye or someone that you don't know perhaps and to actually go there. Um, I'll also leave with this thought of uh, three-dimensional chess what a great, I can't wait to, for the book when it's out, I think in a, a year or so. Um, I encourage those who are in the position to, to look at things three-dimensionally to be able to play big, to not just solve the obvious, but to think about how you can have the win-win-win. Uh, and I will close with this thought for the week. Last week, Paul Corona offered us we could strengthen our relationships with something very simple, ask, listen, and give. Um, and, and building on that, I'll leave you with, I can see you because I've gotten to know you. I can see you because I've gotten to know you. It's much easier to help people we know and for them to help us when they know us. It never feels great when someone doubts us. So don't doubt what's within someone else. Take a moment or two, get to know someone a little bit better. We'll all be better for it. And I thank you for tuning in. It's a wrap. Please be part of the solution and kindly share the show and amplify Franz's voice. Reflect on your own top takeaways and know I'm cheering for you to be who you are and say what needs to be said so that you and those around you have a shared reality essential to make the best decisions, execute with speed, and achieve outstanding outcomes at work and in life. Thanks for listening to Say It Skillfully with host Molly Chang. Join us again for more ways to say it skillfully next Tuesday, 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific on the Voice America Business Channel. Follow Molly on LinkedIn and Twitter. Check out sayitskillfully.com and sign up so you don't miss her latest 90-second video. And please, be part of the solution. Kindly tell others about this program so they say it skillfully too. 